It sure is quiet here. <laughs> On the Western Front. Five years of the flick lab at this point, recording wise. Hooray! I, I kind of can't remember the old days, the early days when we were thinking about that. Oh my god, the podcast will die within seven, seventh episode. Yeah, yeah, we carried on like soldiers, I suppose. But I think uh, the true heroes here are someone else tonight than, than us. But nevertheless, yeah, five years. Basically, Somehow, this time around, I completely actually forgot that. Yeah. Oh my god, yeah. The the five-year anniversary is upon us. Alright, but uh, tonight we're gonna look at the young men fighting, look at the women crying, look at the young men dying, the way they've yeah. always done before. Yeah, today we are celebrating the franchise. Right. There was certain someone who said that there are no true anti-war movies. There might be a kernel of truth to that. Yeah, even even with today's topic. And I know that we are going to land on this seeing what... Well, well, fuck it. The title already spoils it. So, all quite on, on the Western Front. Like, I'm fully aware that the novel and these movies, all three of them, they have a legacy as this great anti-war art, so to say. Uh, I want personally, I have to confess, I haven't read the novel, so I can't, I can't speak for the novel. But when it comes to the film adaptations as the all-time greatest, the true anti-war films, I kind of have to say that, you know, the judges, the jury is still on, somewhat on the benches regarding that notion. I'm still somewhat hesitant to actually give the, the statement that, you know, that the film adaptations of All Quiet would be the true anti-war movies. If we want to talk about the the novel, yeah, yeah, I, I kind of went through it in a flash. And it's indeed... Yeah, I, I know that you managed to actually do your background works work way better than me. Uh, and coming uh, to this episode. Uh, I don't know, that's very kind of you, but uh, let's see about that. But yeah, the, the novel was written by Eric Maria Remark, and this is the most read German novel of all time, as far as I am aware. Yeah, uh, I've, if I've understood correctly, this is like one of those novels that are mandatory reading in Germany at some hmm. some age. Yeah, yeah. And there sure is, and for understandable reasons, uh, a lot of this anti-war teaching in the schools. So this might be part of the anti-war curriculum. Uh, Well, I I don't have anything to back this up, but that that kind of might also backfire on you. If you you do anti-war lessons, then there is bound to be a bunch of those nitwits who will just turn it around and, and oppose the teacher and go full on the wrong way. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. I have for quite some time, I've 
actually thought that the best way to teach anti-war message to youngsters, kids, teenagers, is, is to just to, you know, pack the whole bunch together and send them to the front. There you go. <laughs> that's a that's a segue. That's a segue to today's movies. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, because these are experiences that cannot be adequately described, it seems, and cannot be adequately recreated for someone who is not and will not be and hasn't been any part of uh, any kind of kind of a major uh, or real life uh, war conflict. They always have to, I guess, try their luck a little bit more and and see see what it's all about, and then back to the starting point. Oh, war kind of sucks. Yeah, yeah. Or or then then you find out that it's actually great fun and good for your well-being and physical health. All that running and jumping and diving to cover. Who am I to say I've never actually tried it myself? There's that. Can't, can't give an objective truth that war sucks. There's that. But- Every exercise comes with its hazards. But this book, this novel, has a sequel called The Road Back from 1930, written or released two years later. 1928 was the release of The All Quiet on the Western Front. And uh, there was also a subsequent movie adaptation of The Road Back, done in 1936. I'm not quite sure if there's other adaptations. I think I'm only aware of this, this one. That was, I guess, supposed to be some kind of a following from the 1930 movie. But I didn't even know that All Quiet had a sequel. Yeah, yeah. But not uh, directed by the same guy. And this is also a book, the All Quiet on the Western Front, a book banned and burned in Nazi Germany. Surprise, surprise. Mm-hmm. And uh, writer said book happened to be stateless from 1938 to 1947 until he finally settled into the United States. And spent the rest of his days there. World War One veter- veteran indeed. And I understand quite a bit of what he's writing about. No surprise there. is is based on some of his harrowing experiences. And when it comes to the actual uh, story of the 1928 novel. I, w- I would say that it is extremely similar to the 1930 and the 1979 movie adaptations. Perhaps closer to the 1930 movie, there are no huge differences plot-wise and uh, chronological-wise. The scenes do pretty much exactly the same same tricks. There goes in the same order, same plot beats. The biggest one, of course, that the one film that does the biggest changes here is obviously the 2022 version, which we will get to later. But yeah, no no big surprises there, of course, when you're reading a novel, you will get more inside the head of the character, yada, yada, yada. Um, there is some more meditative meditative quality. It's coming from, uh, like it's, it's like the written word or, or the thoughts of uh, Paul Baumer in, in the book. So he is kind of the character that we follow, of course, there as well. And uh, he is the active voice there. There are some things that I noticed that I did not see in the film. You might be able to correct me on that one. But uh, there was a scene when uh, he goes in the novel to... He takes leave and he's somewhere in the city. And there's one military officer who stops him on his tracks. Saying something like, what are you doing? And he is 
agitated about something unsoldier man-like that he is doing, and he immediately proceeds to correct Paul Baumer's ways and uh, proceeds to demand him to take a couple of steps forward and backward and things like that. And inside Paul is fuming, and uh, he concludes that that ruined his evening. And if I remember correctly, then he proceeds to go to uh, see the bunch of other uh, other civilian guys who pretend to know everything about the war, and he feels quite uh, despisive of these people. Yeah, that moment is omniscient from from the film adaptations. The best we get from that when like the film adaptations do have the scene where he meets the the older men in in film adaptations. I don't know how it's in the books, but uh, in the book, but in the films. They are framed as the friends of Palmer's father, and they are in, in beer garden. The whole lot of them and the old geezers start to go about how, how the war is supposed to go. But that's as far as, you know, that moment or that the, the scene that you described from the book exists in the film adaptations. When it comes to, to what was it, a, a village cop, an officer yeah. he meets. I don't remember his rank, but yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Well, at that moment, yeah, that does not exist in any of the film adaptations. Right. When it comes to that scene with the uh, father's friends, I would say that in the novel also that the way that they are talking to Paul is more kind of aggressive and kind of know-it-all-like. Uh, sort of that there, there's more things that they say to him, something like, yeah, but you wouldn't know that because you're just in this this particular part of the trenches. You wouldn't see the full picture, man. Things like that. That does exist in okay. in, in the film adaptations. However, uh, it's a question of the theme that the films have or, or the essence that the film adaptations do have. Both the 1930 and 1979 adaptations, they both have that scene and they behave in similar way. However, the tone of the 1930 films is, is kind of lighter and mm. as a result when they have the know-it-all attitude and when they are, in the essence when they are looking down on Paul and his experiences and his you know, practical knowledge of how the war is it's framed more in a jovial, one might even say comedical fashion. Like one guy even pulls out a, the the map of of Germany French border and starts to like point the map, which is not directly slapstick, but but weirdly comical way to present the moment. 1979 version is is more serious toned, and it does have the line that oh, but you are in in that part of the trench you wouldn't know to see the big picture. However, no special attention is paid to what is being said or that moment, which makes it kind of a, just, you know, a, a piece of dialogue in, in a, you know, amongst 50 other lines of dialogue. So it's kind of easy to miss what is being said and the tone how it's being said in the 1979 version. Right, interesting. Um, when it comes to that kind of a more lightweight feel of the 1930 movie, maybe that is slightly pushing it. Yeah, there is that more of a 
comedic feel in in some of the scenes and overacting that is typical for for the time so that's nothing nothing special to note but uh, I, I wouldn't say that I wouldn't go as far as to say that it's I'm not claiming that you are but I wouldn't say that it is like overly comedic if I compare this to something like the unknown soldier from well it was filmed quite a bit later but I, I would say that the original unknown soldier from Finland is more in the lack of a better word, Rillumare, kind of this happy-go-lucky than this film is. And there, my man, you actually hit a really good point. Because something that I noticed when when going through the three adaptations, like we did with Unknown previously, is that with the adaptations of All Quiet, we kind of land ourselves in in the Unknown Soldier situation, where you have totally three different type of films in almost, I would say, exactly the same way how you did with The Unknown Soldier. You have the first one, the the old black and white film, which (laughs) is the most lightweight, most lighthearted, most comedical, most adventurous. I'm not saying that it's, like you pointed out, I'm not saying that, really I'm not saying that All Quiet 1930 version is as lighthearted. And as much of a Rillum Ray movie as was the original Edwin Linus yeah. unknown. But it's kind of in the same vein. That there is a, like, when you watch these movies, it's obvious to say that, that well, 1930 version does have, it has most of, of the funny scenes. It has funny side characters there. It, it, it has downright comedical scenes. Few, but they do exist there. there. And like it was with Malberg's version of The Unknown, the 1979 version of All Quiet is basically the the intended contradiction to the original film adaptation. 1979 version is, is the, the gritty, dirty, war is hell, you get to see the blood finally take on the source material, and then you have the, the 2022 version, which is, well, essentially the Oscar bait. It's the glossy, shiny, Hollywood-esque version of the story. And I'm not saying that that automatically means that, you know, a film bad or this better than that. But much like we, like we did take notice that this, this is what happened with the unknown. And in my opinion, the exact same bloody thing happens with All Quiet. That's an interesting comparison, my friend, because uh, even like technical-wise, you could say that there is similarities. 1930 version of All Quiet on the Western Front, yeah, black and white, gorgeously shot, I would say. Yeah, uh, best cinematography, I would say, of these. Hands freaking down. It it, uh, fights with the, the, the Netflix Oscar paid 2022 version. Hands freaking down. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, two points about those comparisons. The 1930, or let's say that the first version of Unknown Soldier and Oak White on the Western Front. I think those are movies that, number one, want to remain somewhat clearly patriotic to the audience. And number two, they want to be protective of audience. They don't want to go all greedy and slimy and dirty and bombastic explosive all that at least not only it wants to keep 
you know, basically the roughest violence off screen. And it wants to have all those all those lightest moments. And like you said, it also it, it kind of wants to have this balancing, showing you also that you can have funny to fun at the army as well, while there's some you know harrowing moments here and there. But yeah, it's it's kind of this tug of war between fun fun times and uh, girls and things like that and sunny days. Whereas then uh, the ninety seventy nine version. I would say even technically, it, it kind of reminds me of Mulberg's work. But there, would I dare to say even kind of this TV-esque quality is something that might bind them together? And then similarly to these third versions, these 2000 versions of both, both respectively, they are more more of this kind of a the huge uh, blockbuster cinematic, cinematic style that we see recently. Look, trying to look expensive, I guess what I'm saying. Yeah, and with that, uh, when it comes to the cinematography of, of the 1979 version and, and Marlborough's Unknown, I kind of, well, have to agree with you there. Uh, Marlborough's version was, was notable for the fact that it was, like, Marlborough took the, the you-are-there-in-the-situation approach to the limit. A huge chunks of the movie were handheld, and there were weird goofs that resulted from this because Marburg refused to have the the closely protected and guarded shooting sets around him when he was shooting the films. There are, there are scenes where you can you can see see the boom mic, or you can you can see the the extras extra hands in in the edges of the of the frame. Yeah, but that was all part of like, or, or those were mistakes that were p- result of Malberg's goddammit, you will be there approach of filmmaking. Now the nineteen seventy nine version of All Quiet, it's not as hardcore in its approach as Malberg was, in my opinion. Now I didn't check out how it exactly was shot, but it's not as handheld. And by God, there are no goofs in in the images of the 1979 version, like like we had with Malberg. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the aim, in my opinion, is the same. Like just like Malberg, the 1979 All Quiet wants to be the film where you are in the trenches and where you are with the with the hecticity of the moment. Yeah, some something of the sort. And coming back to those shots in 1930 version, yeah, beautiful shots like the classroom and uh, all of those shots I really, really like that were shot through the window for some reason. It's a nice composition and kind of shows you like an overall view of the town, what, what is happening. And, I just, uh, and, and also very dynamic shots in the movie for the time, in my opinion. There's a lot of variety in how the c- camera moves and works and uh, uh, wiggles around uh, the characters. I, I think there was a lot of attention given to the composition and very much worthy of the praise, for sure, that it got during during the time. And even though there are sound effects that sound... that The sound is actually very real-sounding. Obviously, there are some you know, bad cuts and things like that, but it doesn't matter. There is something about the energy of the actors in the in the war scenes that kind of really sells it to me at, at points. 
I think it, it looks like real war. It sounds like real war. The, the people and their screams sometimes are pretty good goddamn acting. Yeah, I'm kind of two ways about that. I'm not disagreeing with the point that it's really well acted. It absolutely is. Like you mentioned, it perhaps at times a bit overacted. Yeah, perhaps yeah. Perhaps a, a bit theatrical, theatrical. But that was the filmmaking of the times. That's acceptable here. So overall, I, I would say it's a really well acted. But when it comes to, actually, in my opinion, uh, so, somehow from these two... Well, basically from all the three movie adaptations, the 1979 version for some odd reason was the one that cap- captured me the most. Oh no. <laughs> like I'm and I I'm, I'm not saying that in the sense that the 1979 version would have been better acted. It's well acted, but I I do feel that the 1930 version beats it in acting. I would say that the 2022 Version beats it in acting. The performances are the best in those two versions. And the fact that the 1979 version, it, it did have film stars. It did have film actors in it. But a lot of the actors came from TV movie and TV series backgrounds. Like, for example, the 1979 version's Paul ba- Baumer, hmm. who is not a film star. He's a TV actor. And that kind of does affect... And and kind of like bleeds into the the, the smorgasbord of performances that you get in the 1979 version. So absolutely, I I I admit that when it comes to acting, the 1979 version perhaps is the most uneven in it what it, what it's offering and not the best acted of the three adaptations. But for some reason, it actually is the one that that hooked me in. And I kind of can't understand what it is. Perhaps we can figure it out today. Hmm. Yeah. But, but yeah. it's it's not like a technical aspect. It's not the shots, because it's not the best shot movie. It's not the acting, no. because it's not the best acted version of the material. But, but somehow, I actually was more on board with the 1979 version than I was, for example, with the 1930 version. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a lot of things to like in uh, different things to like in all, all these uh, versions. Something to still uh, kind of ponder about the whole 1930 version on my part is uh, because the compositions of shots are great. Um, many of them are static shots, and they are great. They are kind of like paintings sometimes, and it. I, I think it tremendously helps where how you can see and experience. What is going on? I I think it's um, very clear to follow the film at points, thanks to that, because there's repeat shots, there's repeat angles, repeat cutbacks. For example, when Paul is in in the foxhole or what have you, and we experience him uh, being trapped in that hole by repeat shots of his expression, and then in between you have running soldiers and bombardment, and he's there all alone and scared. And, and then the Frenchie comes into the trenchy, only several minutes later. So, yeah, just moments like that where we are just getting accustomed to the shots and the spaces. That's what I really enjoyed about the 1930 version. It's not like complete and 
other chaos like in 2022 versions version not saying that you know it's particularly unclear to follow but i did enjoy that kind of stay put mentality of the 1930 version which of course for sure is for budgetary reasons technical reasons of of those times as well but heck i enjoyed it when for example there's the classroom scene paul has has his leave and he comes back to his old teacher to unfortunately not give any encouraging war propaganda for the teacher's class but yeah this whole scene it's shot in basically three different shots there's the shot that focuses on the teacher and his desk there's the shot that focuses on the door from where paul is coming to the classroom and where we see paul all the time except for maybe that other shot which then it turns back into the teacher shot and then there is the full shot of the whole class and the people in it and then there are yeah sure there's some you know close-ups on faces of people giving their ah oh, ooh ah oh, shocked expressions on what paul is saying so the simplicity of it just it's pretty to look at yeah and i credit where credit is due 30 version does have the best lecture sh- scene of all three movies I think so, yeah. In, in, in fact, it has... A, a lot of the scenes that it has are the best versions of the said scene in be, between all the, all the three versions. It's also the one that has the most iconic scenes. Like, for example, the, the two hands... Two hands, yeah. ...grabbing the barbed barb wire, the two severed hands grabbing the barbed wire... Which is is one of those scenes that that whenever somebody makes a makes a YouTube video about war movies or you know you go into to film school lecture X, you are bound to see that scene. It's that iconic, and those are all in in the 1930 version. It's also the film that has the most mustaches, specifically French mustaches. If you're if you're a Frenchy, you have a mustache. Period. But. What I was actually counting in for being a sticking point for you, my friend, was the fact that 1930 version is also the one that straight up reuses and recycles images. Like I, I don't, and I don't mean that they have a similar type of type of situation that they just you know have reshot almost identical scene. I mean it literally uses image reuses images, and it's also the version that has. I would say the weirdest editing goofs of mm. all these all quiets. Mm-hmm. So basically, technically wise, 1930 version is the one that where you where you most see the technical problems and the technical scenes of the film. Okay, um, are you referring referring to the repeat stock images of planes flying overhead or that? And also moments like I don't remember which one of the of the counter French counter attacks it is, but one of the countless scenes where the Germans are in their trench, they are waiting for the the French counter attack to happen. They are all lining up their rifles, and there is the machine gunners. With the machine gunners, for, for example, you get one of the most notable examples of this. It. It starts with a with an image 
of the machine gunner and and the feeder the the guy whose whose job is to to feed the bullet bullets to the machine gunner be, being the, lying there waiting anticipating the attack the feeder starts to to lean in towards the machine gunner harsh cut and it automatically retreats back into the previous image those type of type of things where you clearly see that it's like it it's hands down it's the exact same scene the same image that you are using and also like like you know the guy magically moves from leaning forwards to being once again being in the background so you also have the editing goof yeah and also kind of prominent in the films of these times i, I would say people or the editing booth trying to trust on that the audience would not notice but i guess then somebody noticed that hey they actually noticed these uh, things th- again 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 it, it didn't have in in every movie in the 1930s some some movies actually managed to avoid all of this looking at many of the film noir classics so obviously obviously 1930 version of all quiet is the is the hap dash Trash version of of the source material. Louis Marston should get back into film school to learn how to direct and how to line up shots and how, <laughs> what to tell your editing editing team so that mistakes like this wouldn't happen. You heard it here first. Ah, <laughs> sacrilegious. Give that Oscar back, Marston. <laughs> yeah, it could be also that kind of complexities of of the scenes in such of a magnitude of a movie but i don't know i wasn't there so also some if we want to compare the differences between these three versions in the first movie you have the butterfly in the second movie you have the drawing of a bird and the third movie you have you know we're gonna spoil everything i assume presume I so presumptuous of me, but dear listener, we are assuming here that you've probably seen the films already. And in the third film, it's getting stabbed in the back. So, so those plot beats, which actually are once again semi-interesting when it comes to the differences between these films. Yeah, because like you mentioned, all of these films have a different type of death the death scene for Paul Bowman. Yeah. And the way how I kind of categorized these were that the 1930 version has the poetic death. Yeah. Bowman reaches for the butterfly, but what we are focused on is is his hand. Is it's his his hand is is reaching towards the enemy, towards his fellow man who could be his friend if they weren't for the if it weren't for the war like like certainly yeah he's reaching for the butterfly but the how, way how the frame uh, shot is being framed it's just it's so so solely focuses on the hand that it gets kind of this this larger context where you can say that the hand really is reaching for the french frenchies at the other side of the line and then Butterfly in in that scene to me it was being shown as a sign of tranquility amongst all the chaos that was the the, the trench warfare that they were going through. Now it's also the death where it's kind of a being set up the most. Uh, the French sniper that ends up shooting Palmer gets a good long setup 
we, we got cuts to Palmer, we got cuts back to the sniper. It's almost Hitchcockian in its build-up. Like, it really feeds into the anti- anticipation. Does the sniper pull the trigger or does he not? Does some miracle save Palmer or does it not? And as Palmer is being shot, we only see his hand slowly retreating. The pos- uh, And to me, that was kind of the film hinting at the... Or, or playing... Uh, using the, the symbolism of... The possibility for the peace, for peace and common understandment fading as as Paul Palmer's hand retreats back into the German trench when he dies. The 1979 version, on the other hand, to me, it was the statement death of Paul Palmer. Palmer uses spare time, waiting time to to just doodle like he used to do back in the classroom. So when he's trying to draw the bird in the trenches, he's kind of looking back into the innocence of his school days and the bird doodling that he used to do do back then. And his death is instant. He's shot in the back by an invisible enemy, never shown to us, never built up to us, no tension. It's just a quiet moment, bang, he dies. And to me, that ending is the one that is punctual. Palmer stands up, period. Palmer is shot, period. Palmer dies, period. The end, period. And then we have the, 90, uh, the 2022 version, which is a kind of a hybrid death. Of Paul Palmer. It, it's a mix-up of, of the two previous death scenes. It's shiny and dramatic, like everything in this version. Makes a statement about the fu- this time about the futility and stupidity of of war. But uh, it also has that the death takes forever. Palmer walks the, up the stairs to die on the trench. It has this poetic st- poetic take of Palmer's da- last moments. And it's, like I said, it's really beautifully shot. The statement here for me is more about the, the institution or a thing, the entity that is war, less than it's about what Palmer wants or, or needs or what he's looking back at before his final moments. To me, Palmer actually doesn't really want anything before he's being stabbed. Palmer also doesn't reach for anything in the same way as in, in the previous versions. And the final shot with the name tag collecting kid is literally outside of Palmer pa- pa- and his experience. So when, when the previous versions, they steadfast, they locked on Paul Paul Palmer and his 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 perspective, his experiences in this war, the 2022 versus Palmer's death is a is a complete parallel to that. The, the Paul Palmer's point of view is completely alienated from, from his eyes. It's kind of like the, the audience also looking at the closing chapter of an idiocy that has been witnessed by the audience for the past two and a half hours. And like I say, I don't mean the, this comparison to, to hint that some ending is automatically better or worse than the other. I'm not saying that, that the 2022 death scene is a bad ending, mind you. But like I said, I do feel that all the death scenes do have an identity 
And in my opinion, the two, the identity, these go like the poetic ending, uh, the statement ending, and the hybrid ending. <laughs> well, holy Christmas. That was some analysis right there. 1930, I felt that that was kind of a dumbass death, dumbass ending. And the second one was also a kind of a dumbass ending. In a way that it is his lack of, lack of focus that finishes him off. Sure, sure, poe- poetic and quaint, sure. But at the same time, I felt kind of angry at him for losing his focus. Yeah, he kind of does make a stupid mistake in both endings. But when it comes to the third one, at first I felt a little disappointed seeing how it now all seems to end. That is just a kind of a meaningless death in, in a way that it's not Paul's fault this time, I'd say. But just that it happens like a few seconds before the armistice comes into effect. That the way that he dies, that he's just stabbed from behind, close to the heart, or to the heart, I don't know. So that very much emphasized the, the pointlessness of the entire conflict. And that's what I thought when the film ended. Yeah, that, that was actually a pretty good one. Pointless death, pointless way of dying, everything is pointless. He's essentially, he's being killed by a French camper. Yeah. And I kind of did like that he was walking up the stairs and seeing the light, seeing at least for a few seconds what it might look like when there is finally peace. And he reaches his peace. But if we want to introduce also the ending of the 1928 original novel, there is no butterflies, no drawings, no sudden deaths. What there is, is just a sudden explanation in a third-party voice that Paul Beimer died in the front on this and this day, and it was reported that that it was all quiet on the Western Front. End of story. So it doesn't contribute on that front. So, 1979, let's, let's find out why you actually gravitate towards this movie. I felt that it was... Uh, Especially considering what we have in 1930 version, it's a bit of a dull movie and experience because it's repeating actually the same scenes from the 1930, changing nothing. It's almost like, uh, well, not everything, but it in in many ways it copies the way that the 1930 movie was constructed. It's it's selecting all the same main pieces of the 1930 movie. It's almost like as if well, we didn't really bother to, to read the novel. Well, let's just look at this 1930 movie and uh, and see what we can come up with. That's that's how I felt. But in my opinion, it's 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 not it's not bringing anything new from the original novel. Not really. If it does anything new, it, at least it has this voiceover of Paul Beimer, Boomer, Boomer, Beimer. He's kind of the storyteller of the movie. And this was a joint British-American TV production, mostly filmed in Czechoslovakia. So it, it has the TV-esque feel from time to time. And it, it's something weird about the color of the movie. Yeah, maybe this is where also the TV vibes come on, because it is disturbingly yellow. <laughs> the whole film is yellow. And it's... It it's is. And flat. And it's not because of the aging aging uh, film or anything. It's, it just happens to 
contain a lot of... Th I was like going through the film on a 16 times speed just to see kind of how the movie changes when you look at it on the whole. Okay, we have a yellow, yellow uh, clothing. We have the yellow street. We have the yellow building. We have the yellow trenches. What the hell is going on here, director? <laughs> yeah. Well, the simple answer to, to the question, of course, is the fact that it has Richard Thomas playing Paul Palmer. And I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, of the 1990 TV miniseries movie version of Stephen King's It. <laughs> which is so goddamn bad that, oh my god. Or that's what I thought, and then I saw the new It, chapter 2. <laughs> oh shit. That's a, that's a, that most definitely is an episode. But uh, to, to get actually, to, to be more, more serious for a moment, um, I actually disagree with you. I do think, like, you're right on the money that essentially what 1979 version does, it basically has the same scenes from the 1930 version. And it doesn't, like, when it comes to material, when it comes to scenes, when it comes to story, when it comes to character, it doesn't bring anything new to the table. In fact, what it does, it removes things from the table. 1930 version had the old veteran body. Is that Cat? Uh, I meant Cat's friend. Okay. The, the comedical sidekick that they get get drunk when they go, you know, strike the ladies. Yeah, well, that guy. Yeah, that character, whose name completely escapes from me. And that, for example, is, is an example of a character that is almost completely omitted from the 1979 version. So one could even make the argument that 1979 version has less stuff in it than the 1930 version. But overall, yeah, it's it's the same scenes, it's the same moments. But where I do think that there is a big difference is in the tone of these films. And that's when where I do think that actually... Where, where I liked the 1979 version more. A big part of that, of course, is Paul Palmer's monologues. Which is this... The Terence Malik-esque, the Thin Red Line. He used the exact same thing in in the Thin Red Line, where the main character goes on monologues about the futility and the stupidity of war and the effects that the war has on him. And I actually really loved those yeah, they're in the 1979 version. Basically text from the original novel, yeah. Those, yeah. Those are good stuff. But when I also felt that it did have tone-wise... Now, you mentioned uh, in the discussions that happened, be, be, you know, be behind the scenes outside of the recording session, you made the notion of raw edge. And you mentioned that 1979 is lacking it. Yeah. Yeah. And I can see where you're coming from. I'm not making the argument that you are wrong. I'm making the argument that I had a different experience with the two films. Because in to me, I kind of found more raw edge from the 1979 version. And that's not just the monologues. I like the way how the 1979 version goes straight to the violence. And then when it 
showcases you Paul Palmer's backstory, it uses, in my opinion, really effective cutting. You, you have Paul Palmer stone-faced, bored out of his mind, waiting for the, the attack to happen at the trenches. Harsh cut to his school years. Harsh cut back to the trench warfare. I really liked that that editing choice. I, I felt that it had more punch that way than it had in than Palmer's backstory in, in the 1930 version, where it's where it's clear, sensical, chronological. They are at school, they join the army, they go to the training camp, they find themselves in the trenches. It's 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 understandable, it's clear cut, really well done, but I did like the the cross-cutting in the 1979 version. Okay. And then there are other moments that strongly spoke to me. I like the fact that, unlike in, in 1930 version, the 1979 All Quiet puts more blame on the fact that the school, the, the school class joins the army on Paul Palmer's shoulders. Of course, yeah, 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 the teacher is still the one who gives the... The initial propaganda speech. But then he gives a personal, intimate propaganda speech to Paul Palmer, who then goes and parrots the whole goddamn thing to the rest of his classmates, which does not absolve the teacher and does not entirely make it Paul Palmer's fault, but it kind of, it more heavily shares the blame. Paul Palmer is is more the demagogue here, who is responsible for the fact that his friends follow follow him to the front. And also, it's harsher on the other kids also. This is something that in 1979 version comes in form of the character of Himmelstos, the, the drill instructor at the barracks. Now, in the 1930 version, Himmelstos is just this, this tiny man who gets over, is overjoyed by the power that is given to him and automatically goes into abusing the said power. But 1979 version has the moment before the, the training barracks when Himmelstos is still just, you know, the postman of the village and it has the boys bullying Himmelstos. Which then, when they hit the training barracks and all the hazing starts, it's, it frames all of that more of a revenge from Himmelstos' end. He's getting back, he's bullying his old bullies, essentially. And I kind of like that because it, once again, it put more blame also on the school kids' shoulders. And then it also goes forward, more forward with Himmelstos. Himmelstos actually has a downright character arc in the 1979 version, mm-hmm. because in in the original, because in the 30 verse, 1930 version, Himmelstos just almost disappears from the movie, and then he appears at the war front and is quickly killed in in the first attack that he has to participate himself. But in the 79 version, Himmelstos, it's made a point that. The reason why Himmelstos end, ends up in the front is because he actually fucks it up dur- during a hazing ritual at the training barracks. He's not sent there because, you know, fair is fair and everyone has to do their, their part. Himmelstos ends up there because he just happened to be a bu- happened, happened to a bully uh, uh, some son of a higher up. The institution once again fled in and puni- punished uh, Himmelstos 
because he just overreached with his power. He bullied someone that he shouldn't have. The hazing itself apparently was all fine for the military. He just happened to pick one wrong target. And later on, when Hemerastos lands his first attack that he has to participate in, well, once again, Hemerastos is at first a coward who has to be dragged out of the crater to participate. But later on, once again, because army is kind of a miraculous place, Himalstos is the one that gets rewarded for some great courage, and he gets the Iron Cross. And then again, Himalstos also is the character who learns a lesson of humility, when he then returns back to the second company, the company that he used to bully. Mm. Himalstos all of a sudden is, is really quiet. Yeah. And they they show mercy for uh, to him they they say that come in sit down yeah and they, they nice. the hostilities between the second company and himelstos they just cease and then later on himelstos dies as he does that was nice i i think yeah. uh, ian holm was a great great choice of, choice of an actor for for this particular role for some reason and i i i don't know what to think about the non linearity of the film or the kind of the kind of cross-cutting nature of the film, but it's definitely a factor in the film. Uh, what I maybe most enjoyed about the 1979 version is that they made Paul more of like the lead character, whereas I felt that in the 1930 version, well, I I I I really just felt that I was looking at a, a bunch of people as a, as a group, like more like in the Unknown Soldier movies, where there is no particular lead star it's just a group of people but then people started to get reduced there's always someone dropping out of the picture and then finally there's only paul Beimer. and and it doesn't happen like until at the very end of the movie when he is clearly now the the leading character of the movie because there's no one else to lead so <laughs> that was uh, a big difference yeah, uh, on smaller differences still, since, since I really have to unpack why I liked the 79 version so much, I also liked the fact that I felt that the situation is kind of a more cruel, or the characters become more cruel in the 79 version. They do mention that they ki- start to kill rats, not as a reaction to finding out that they have an inve- in, uh, infestation at in the duckout, but as a pastime. 79 version also has the, the element of chemical warfare, and it does showcase the army sending younger and younger cannon fodder to the front, a running theme that it exists in the background of the 1930 uh, version, but there it's saved for the very l- last moments of the film, when Paul gets back from his sick leave and reunites with his, his squad... That's the moment when they realize that, oh my god, now, now they are sending, what, what, 16, 15-year-olds to the front? But in 79 version, this is a running theme. They make a repeated remark that the troops are just getting younger and younger. And I also love the fact that this one has the moment when Paul visits Kimrich's Grim- uh, uh, mother and ends up lying to her about how her son died. What I felt that the film was lacking, however, would be... I I, I felt that 
the 1930% had a better. Paul letter le- returning to the school slash the lecture scene. Because because here Paul Paul gets the, in 79 version Paul gets the chance to call up the teacher on his bullshit, but Paul is not being called a coward himself by the the young class uh, by the young schoolboys, which yeah. I do think that is a shame. I do think that in 79 version that moment would have been actually better, stronger. If there also would have been the you know you are a coward Paul moment. And in, in all honesty, in all honesty, I made a joking remark about Richard Thomas as as Paul ba- Baumer, which I, I repeat, not the best performance when it comes to Paul ba- Baumer's of of all quiet. Perhaps the the weakest Paul that we have, mm. but for some odd reason, for some odd reason, it's the Paul that I connected the most, and it's not just the inner monologues. There is something in Richard Thomas's. And not the best performance that's still connected with me. And I know that it's weird. I can't explain why. Perhaps there is uh, some micro-expressions that he manages to pull off with his face. Perhaps yeah. it's the laconic nature of, of his posture. But but for some reason, like even though I admit full-heartedly that technically he's not the best Paul... He might even be the worst Paul that we have in all three movies. But I see just somehow connected with the guy. Yeah, sometimes these are just very personal choices. Sometimes you just connect with an actor and sometimes someone else doesn't. And that can be one of the breaking points. Something that I haven't raised into the discussion yet is the, the kind of fighting in the 1979 version. Because those scenes are sometimes... I, I was kind of chuckling at some of those fight scenes, to be honest, because the the fighting is sometimes so stiff and slow, and the choreograph choreography. How the frick you say that? Choreo choreography. Chore- choreography. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. No. Is basically non-existent, and there is no that I don't see the same urgency that I see in. Some scenes in 1930, although, yeah, sometimes it's a bit theatrical <laughs> as well. But I feel that it is still only 12 years has has passed since the end of the World War One, So I think people still know how to make very realistic uh, settings for the film. And many people have actually been on the front who are acting in the film, I would presume. So they have a personal connection to it. They are able to get some of their you know mentality of the real war into the picture whereas in the 1979 it feels like oh i guess i should punch now there you go oops missed yeah yeah i perhaps was more just amazed by the fact that we finally had bullet holes in in people and and some (laughs) blood well something that my partner noted about the 1930 version is that in his opinion, uh, the, well, put it put this into perspective. He he doesn't really ever watch uh, black and white films, so he, for sure he doesn't have that kind of a um, touching point on that or or a certain patience or what have you. But what he says is can be right in its in its own way that the, because the, it's a black and white film, he thinks that the film loses something because 
you, you can't really see the blood, you can't see the colors of the battle. And that's a viewpoint. Yeah, yeah, you get all the 16 million colors available to you. They are all in the 2022 version, for sure. Yeah, I also felt that yeah. there is... Well, once again, to harken back in the, the talking point of the tone, I do kind of think... And this may just be the fact that we actually get blood on the 79 version. Mm. But I, I felt that the 1930 version, much like... Edwin Linus, the unknown, is perhaps a bit afraid to actually showcase you yeah. on screen the horrors of, of war. Yeah. Like, like you, you have a whole lot of stuff here. You have people blowing to bits. You have people being shot. You have amputations left and right. 50 amputations. You don't actually see any of the carnage. Yeah. That's not entirely true. Like I like I mentioned, uh, you have the the ha- severed hands grabbing the barbed wire shot, yeah. which is you know on screen violence, one of the most iconic moments of on screen violence. So it's to to rephrase myself and to take myself back a little bit. 1930 version is not completely omitting violence. You get that, but I. Still felt that it was surprisingly low on violence. And the 79 version also is it's not hugely violent movie. Like what you get is is the same stuff that you got in, in the 1930 version. The 79 version just adds, you know, gunshot wounds here and there. If you want, you know, the, the horrific horrific carnage violent version, that would be the 2022 version. Yeah, so sort of, sort of. We'll get to that in, in a sec, for sure. And 1979, I did completely forgot right now. It, it just came back to me that actually the beginning of the film, it, it, it starts quite explosively. Like if, if you compare to 1930 version, a lot of the scenes that are in the 1930 version that took like one and a half hours to go through, a lot of those things just happen in, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes in the 1979 version. I, I kind of like that, gets you going. But then I was afraid that it will start to slow down as we progress. And yes, it did. It came to a point where I just started to kind of mock the scenes with my partner. And then there's this scene where where uh, the mother is asking from her bed that, Paul, why didn't you tell you're coming home? And we would just respond. I deleted my Facebook account. So <laughs> seventy nine to play play with open cards. It also has the most dumbass Paul. <laughs> I would say of all the films. Uh the, the like the, the biggest sticking point here is the the whole uh, Paul being uh, stabbing the Frenchie in the creator scene. Which, in 1930 version, it's a result of Paul getting injured in, in the charge against the French trenches. And in 1979 version, it's the result of Paul somehow dumbassedly solo rumboing in the front. <laughs> which I couldn't understand that what the hell was going on. Yeah, he, he it, it's, ni- it's night time and he's... He's all alone crawling in a bloody no man's land that they have between them. Yeah. And then he gets stuck in the, the 
the creator, and then the franchise shows shows up. Yeah, in all of the versions, we see this crazy running in open playing field. I guess this is something that we just have to accept that happened, and uh, people were doing this. And of course, we see that in way older conflicts. You know, just people marching against each other and not having anything to blockade on the way, just starting to kill each other in the open playing field. That's how you solve yeah, conflicts. Yeah, 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 that, that's just, just, you know, the, the good old-fashioned trench warfare of the times. <laughs> no no problem there. But in 1979 version, Poe doesn't get stuck on the crater because he's charging. Yeah, he's charging. He's just, he just crawls in there, alone, in nighttime, when they are not attacking, for some goddamn reason. Well done. Yeah. Good job, goddamn dumbass. And uh, I hate to I hate to make this bridge, but speaking of dumbass, twenty twenty two version. Uh, uh, that the violent Hollywood version of All Quiet. Yeah, well, uh, With I, the kind of an annoying dubstep soundtrack, which really fucking <laughs> drove my crazy. Oh, oh really? I, I think it's trying to crema- create definitely something Hans Zimmer esque from uh, you know uh, what do you call it? Intention, expansion, attention. What, what's the dream movie? Uh, Inception. 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 Thank you. <laughs> uh, some because that has all the, also those completely throughout the movie repeating horns or some instruments like that, which I I didn't hate. I really liked them in Inception and not the three hundred fifty-seven trailers that came after it. But yeah, I I I I guess that's what's what the score is going on, going after. And I know that you know, yeah, 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 yeah. It it went won the the academic the, the Oscar for for best original score. But oh my god, if I didn't hate it, absolutely loathsome sound effect. And to to note, okay, that's very that's very strong take on that. I actually kind of sort of enjoyed those cues myself. Jesus Christ, man. But... Fuck out of this podcast. You are fired. Okay. Going. No, but... uh, Where to start? First of all, there are these historical inaccuracies. Some of them are in plain sight for everyone to see. Some of them are only for historians to see. Some of the things that might be only visible to historians might be the type of tanks that they're using. The tanks that they're using in these scenes might be one of the less real, reliable tanks for Frenchies that they used during the war. I forgot the what kind of model and all these really specifics, but it's not supposed to be, you know, the tank of the tanks in the scenes. Well, that's that's fine. There is this particular scene that raises perhaps everyone's eyebrows. It's the flamethrowers and the use of the flamethrowers. Using the flamethrowers in such of a fashion that you seem to be in the French front line, front, front, front groups in front of the trenches and you're using the flamethrower to flame everybody up from above the trenches. Well, the historian pointed out that there's a couple itsy-bitsy problems with this. First of all, the flamethrowers would never be on the front like that, in full visibility for everyone to see the stations above the trenches, and they wouldn't set the trenches on fire like that. 
making a complete line of fire so that it would be impossible for the Frenchies to to move forward because there would be just a ball of fire in front of them. And moreover, the the Germans could now regroup and uh, then start shooting the guys with the flamethrowers who are there without any kind of protection on their front lines because they are the front lines. Which they kind of do yeah. in, in the film, actually. Yeah, that's exactly what they do. And I mentioned the th- tanks, but then when the tanks start approaching, yeah, what are the soldiers doing? They're shooting at the tanks with their rifles. Apparently to no I, effect. I, 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 to, to play the devil's advocate, to play the devil's advocate here, I, I took it that those were the, the first tanks that any of those guys had ever seen Okay. Yeah. in their lives. Like, uh, once again, once again, it, it might be historically inaccurate as all hell. Germany actually was, if I remember correctly, during the World War One. Germany actually was one of the leaders when it comes to, to military and warfare engineering. So one would think that actually the German soldiers would most definitely be the ones who have the, the concept of a bloody tank. And they bloody well did. At least the Germans did have light mortars called Minenwerfer and some anti-tank rifles, which would be able to penetrate the tank's armor. But instead, these guys keep shooting with rifles for no reason at all, apparently. You'd think that they would have some military training on this matter. I, I, I know nothing about guns. Well, I went to army, I know that much. But even I know there's nothing to be gained by shooting a tank with normal rifles. Yeah, which I guess they, in the end, they decided that they have. Because later on in the in the tank attack scene, the German soldiers then, or at least Cat, then knows to use the hand grenades and stuck them between the, the tracks of the tanks to mm. disable them. Hmm. Like, like they, all of a sudden, the, the, the German soldiers, they started with firing their rifles at tanks and later on they actually know how to disable the set tags precisely in the exactly same scene who's giving the orders here man <laughs> eh? and also there's this uh, quick shot where the tank seems to enter the trenches which was noted by this professor of sorts and that's kind of weird also if you're gonna go to the trenches with the tank you're gonna have a hard time to get it out of there. Yeah, that also. That also. They got kind of a reverse out of the trench. Because they had to have that because of the gory shot. <laughs> yeah. But I was kind of okay with that. You know, mm. perhaps not the stupidity outstanding, but like how I approached that was that I, I kind of believed that the First World War which is the one that they are fighting here. It may have been kind of the most traumatic of all wars. And I don't mean that in either sense of death toll or horrific instances. I'm not saying that the First World was World War was more traumatic than bloody Holocaust. That's not the statement I'm making. Or that, you know, the Holocaust did... Uh, the, the Second World War plus Holocaust did end up having a higher body count for certain, but what I what I'm aiming at is that the f- 
first world war was perhaps the war where the ways of warfare clashed the hardest. It was a giant ass gauntlet of different nations, some of which had experience of warfare and had actually, you know, battalions of engineers figuring out new ways to kill people, like the Germans for example, and it had the guys who honestly thought that the warfare is still at the stance where you take your horses and and by god it's somewhere something where you go with a sword and i can kind of see that you know like like if you put yourself into the perspective of of a soldier or a nation that is less well equipped and like, like doesn't really understand what has been happening in the military tech recently you have your sword and you are launching a, a, chivalry, a chivalry attack against the enemy and the enemy just happens to have a bloody machine gun mm. or toxic gas on his arsenal. That, that clash, like that realization, oh my god, we are this backwards. When it comes to our understanding what warfare is today, that experience actually perhaps could be more traumatic than anything that happened in the... Second World War, not including the bloody Holocaust here. And, well, you know, when it comes to, to the First and the Second versus the Second World War, World War, at least when it came to the Second World War, the entire world finally had a common understanding of where the military tech actually is at this point. Like, their poison gases no longer came as a surprise. Yeah. And everybody had a concept of a tank, or a flamethrower, or a hand gren- grenade. So, from there, there on, I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm not, and I'm not saying that this is how it was. I'm not making a statement of that sort here, I'm theorizing. But I, on occasion, I do play with the idea, with a question. I play with a question... If the people, when they went for the Second World War, if they were kind of a more pre-adjusted into the possibilities that they might end up facing on the front line. Whereas in the it is First World War, you know, you could, can go there completely blind yeah. and then be surprised with your trousers up in your ankles when it turns out that the crowds have a machine gun. Yeah, my completely layman view on this is that this is kind of a proto proto war pre-war we have gotten barely airplanes to fly in the skies and kind of experimenting with a lot of things and then kind of fine-tuned them them for second world war where everything was not so much of a surprise everything was more fine-tuned uh, tax, yeah. tactics wise as well um and from coming from that point i was kind of okay with the extreme stupidity of the German soldiers of firing ta- rifles at tanks. Yeah, I think that could have needed a few subtitles. Why? Uh, perhaps, yeah. I was I was mostly just reading at their faces. Yeah. And that's like that's like me me just reading a lot into a shot. But I just took their facial expression like they didn't understand what tank is. Yeah. And like I said, not historically accurate. We are talking about the bloody Germany here. But I, I kind of okayed it for a possible t- theme that I hope that that scene had. 
Yeah, and I'm not crucifying the movie here because of historical inaccuracies. From all I gathered is is that the movie is kind of... It's all over the place. It has some scenes where you the soldiers are doing something that is extremely plausible and did happen, like trying to blow up or put mortars in the tanks, what have you. But then you might have trenches that look like something that would have happened in a different period of the war as to compared to what they are supposed to be depicting here, like the end of the war, October 1918-ish. Small things like that. And then a few bigger things, perhaps. There is also the thing that is not an not inaccurate, I, I, I would say, but notably in the 1930 and 1979 versions of this, you have the pointy hats, the so-called Pickelhaube, Pickelhaube helmets that they're using. But in the 22 version, you have the Stahlhelm, which is worn later in the war. So perhaps Pickelhaube is probably more common in World War One cinema, because you can just make a distinction between the First World War and the Second World War, even though... As far as I know, there's mostly no distinction, in a sense, because they still did uh, change to the Star Helms later on. So, but sticking with the, with the total differences here a bit more and griping more about the things that I didn't quite enjoy. Yeah. Uh, the 2022 version makes the decision of omitting Palmer's backstory before the war almost completely. You have like one scene here when they are, well, two scenes. You have the schoolroom scene and then you have them enlisting. You don't have the training. You ha- don't have anything at Palmer's home. You don't have the teacher giving, well, you do have the teacher giving the lecture, but most, mostly, mostly, you know... Palmer's backstory is completely omitted here. Among with Himalastos and, and other characters that previously had yeah. played a part. It also omits the the dial the inner monologues from the 1979 version. It, it also and omits the ladies, basically. Also those, yeah. They, they kind of show up very quickly, but the scene is so different. Mm-hmm. And it's so in a different moment of the film. That you can kind of make the argument that they just don't exist on the movie. It's actually weird how, like, having not read the book, but seeing two film adaptations of the book, it's weird how different the 2022 version is. Seeing that this comes from Germany, where the book is supposed to be, like, one of the books. Yeah, that was an interesting choice. Maybe it's all because they wanted the tonal shift. They didn't want to have those happy moments by the river. They they wanted it to be kind of part of the, part of the conflict. Not not a lot of happy swimming and all that. That could be, but then again, this version gives Palmer and his friends a really lot of quiet time when they are not even in the trench. In this movie about trench warfare. And where they have, you know, clean haircuts and clean clothes. Mm. But I did enjoy greatly that this is bringing this movie a variation to the scenes, completely omitting some stuff, uh, for better or worse perhaps, but introducing new stuff 
and kind of shuffling them around, putting them in different order. Heck, I was thinking at some point that maybe they're not even gonna kill Paul at the end of the movie. Because what I paid attention to is that I was waiting and waiting for that moment when Paul goes, goes back to his old classroom to give that kind of a monologue that, yeah, yeah, war is not such of a great thing after all. And I was thinking that because it doesn't appear, oh, it must happen this way, that Paul actually doesn't die, but they do something neat where after the war he goes to the teacher and tells him his feelings about the war. And now that could have been a little bit more effective even. But then again, Paul has to die. It's his fate. Yeah, I on the other hand, I had a tiny bit of a pro- problem with that approach. Because okay. be, be in, in the previous films, what, what was notable in, in the previous adaptations was the fact that they never actually established when the movies happen. It's during some time of the First World War, which meant that you didn't have the understanding of how much war Paul would still have to go on. And seeing how they stayed so long in the trenches, seeing how they stayed so so much in the same kind of locations or similar looking locations, even though the battle line does change and shift in, in the previous films, the trenches always look the same. Which, to me, it kind of gave the, the impression or the feeling that it was the same continuous situation. It was kind of a limbo. Another day in the trench that never changes, fighting the war that never ends. And even though like the 2022 version is the most gruesome out of the three, you get torn up bodies, dead children, you have the blood splatter, splatters are all time splatterish here, but the situation still doesn't feel as nightmarish as the in in the previous movies because in here it's not one continuous situation. It's more of a it's it's because the characters have have a lot of quiet downtime in in occupied the ranches and other places that are not the trench. It. It kind of starts to feel that it's more of a silent, harmonious situation where they are. At the ranch, where on occasion something gruesome happens. And I'm not saying that this shift in tone is is wrong per se. But I kind of felt that it was wrong when you were doing all quiet at the Western Front. I felt that the movie tries way too hard to win me over with the emotions. That was my big problem with the movie. I felt that it was overselling the violence. Very in-your-face violence at times. Blood spouting everywhere. Yeah, and all I know, or all I pretend to know about death is that it's not really that gruesome all the time. It's just somebody gets shot. Somebody might be suffering for a little while more. Yes, there's some blood. But it's so theatrical in this movie at times that it kind of pushes me off from the mood and, and it's yeah it's trying very hard to appeal to your emotions i would even go as far to say that the lead actor felix felix kammerer as paul beimer he he seems like heavily misdirected to me here because somehow 
I don't buy these weepy expressions by the end of the war. These shots that are filmed on and on and on. Like, even after Paul has experienced death and destruction for over like one year in the war, as far as I know, and war is supposed to be dulling you down. You're dulling down your emotions and then seeing Paul being scared and weeping again and again and again. It's become somewhat unlikely after he's been there for so long, even if it's your I, best pal. I, I took it that that was a result of the film omitting the scenes of Paul visiting his home and in his inner monologues. Like to contrast this against the, the 1979 version. The 79 version has the moment when Paul is visiting his home and he writes the letter to his mom and he talks about his books. How the books no longer speak to him because of his experiences at the war. And how he has become this machine of violence that can only understand and speak of violence. And that's the whole reason why he can not fit home anymore. Mm-hmm. Why he has to get back to the trenches because he has to get back to, quote-unquote, his own people. The people who only speak and understand violence. And the 2022 version has has none of that. So I kind of took it that it was trying to compensate the lack of those moments through Paul's facial expressions. And that would be the reason why he was so, so teary-eyed. He, he, like, he, he shifts... There are moments where he's completely laconic, completely uncaring about what he's being ordered to do. Like when the general says that, okay, yeah, the war is ending like in the next two hours, but you are going to do the one final push and there's no expression on his face. But but on the next shot or the previous shot, he's almost completely breaking down in tears. And I took it Mm. that that was, you know, the movie trying to chuckle between the two realities that just exist within Paul, but the softer element of Paul that it can't directly address because it lacks all the scenes back at home, because it, the movie lacks the letter written to his mom. Yeah, could be. Could be. I don't get the same effect of getting dullified. <laughs> during the war as in the previous adaptations that's as far as i can yeah that's that's what i know yeah i i kind of pattern with it i i would say i didn't get that same effect either yeah but i do applaud the the actor comer and he was telling in an interview about his experience because he's he's been a theater actor for so long and then becomes in this production where he has to shift between all these different emotions and it's not shot in 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 a sequence not in order so yeah he he did have this excel spreadsheet where he would put the different scenes and then write down what kind of a mood he would have to convey in that particular scene then just try to kind of place his mood into into that particular day but perhaps a little bit too much emotion in the film yeah, but we have been talking about the film, uh, the stuff that was taken out mm. from the uh, in, in this version. But well, how about the stuff that was put in? Looking well, at the whole Armistice plotline, I actually completely new and unique to this version. 
quite enjoyed it. And I think some of those scenes actually carried the story on the second half of the movie. Uh, giving some background on the conflict. That's what also my partner was saying. That, well, heaven's sake, I don't know anything about World War One, blah, blah, blah. And that it's great to have, you know, this this additional information on what the hell is going on here. So you have a bit of that. Okay, because I was actually somewhat disappointed by the Armistice plotline. Plot mm-hmm. I was actually... I expected a lot from those scenes when I noticed that... When when I saw the first first Armistice scene, where they were counting the death, sto- death toll at, at the headquarters. And I noticed that, oh my god, it's going to approach the home front of the war. I was really looking forward to it. And and the reason why I perhaps was a bit let down by that plotline was that I was c- kind of really expecting this deep dive into German psyche at the time. Examination of why to talk about duty, noble sacrifice, heroic death uh, for the god, the Kaiser... Which equaled God and the fatherland resonated so much with so many of the young men in Germany at the time. I especially wanted this because many of the aspects and problems that would show up in Germany during the Nazi Reich already existed in in Germany during during the World War One or even before that. Germany wrestled with the, the anti-Semitism predating the Nazis, as evident from the instances like the the Judeshallung, the or the, the Jewish Consensus, hmm. which was an academic study by the military to to root out or prove to prove that the Jewish citizens of Germany were not patriotic, were not willing to do their part. And in fact, we're harboring a conspiracy against against Germany itself. And when the consensus was eventually done, and the results showed completely the opposite, it proved that the Jews were actually patriotic and they were willing to do their part to defend and and you know build Germany. Well, the military all of a sudden just took the whole census and just swept it under the rock. Basically buried it. And then resurfaced it after heavily manipulating the facts. Mm. Like, like, that's something that existed. It, it already had the notion of, of hardy young men gaining eternal glory in, in combat for the fatherland way before Hitler made it official Nazi doctrine. They, Germany had started to divide Germany into ethnic Germans and others way before Kristallnacht. And and even though army as an institution, to my knowledge, never actually did this, German soldiers were using Eurasian symbols that were really close to the official swastika, way before he, Hitler invented his official, now trademarked, symbol. Yeah, well, swastikas were uh, used all over the place, but after the Second World War, you know, yeah gone pretty fast yeah yeah but but german soldiers they and i'm i'm talking about individuals here not the army as an institution but they did take swastika 
and tied it down or something very close to swastika, something aching to swastika. And they took the symbol and they, they tied it to the idea of ethnical or mm. genetical uh, uh, citizenship. Mm. Started to identify the swastika with the German uh, ethnicity. Yeah, yeah, precisely that. That was what I was, I was looking at. But the, yeah, they, they did that. So, so it's basically the Nazi doctrine before the official Nazis. Yeah, I was actually hoping for even more of those po- political scenes in in the movie, and because the original novel also, I feel that it's kind of a kind of it it kind of foresees what's about to come in Germany at the time, that there there is this all this rising nationality, and ethnic ethnical wars, so to speak, and. It could have expanded on that a little bit more. Oh god, so much, yes. Yeah. That's why I, I was really expecting and waiting for that to happen. And then yeah. what, what I get is that there's a whole bunch of meetings, some people going into places. I, I, I'm being served the, contrad- the symbolic contradiction of people, that the, the, the young men of Germany starving to death fighting in the trenches, and then these negotiators going into, to, you know, fancy fancy lunches and drinking coffee in their well-maintained clean suits. Yeah. Because they are, they are doing the politics. I, 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 I was served that. And I was served the, the whole notion from the, the general's end. How the social democrats are raping the country and selling it to the Frenchies and how... at the poor craziness... Of the general, that the fact that he just had to have the final attack for himself before you know the ceasefire starts. I, I was given all that, and that was fine, okay. But I was still expecting more of you know the deep dive in the into the psyche. I was I was expecting more political scenes and more from the political scenes. I, in the end, I felt that the armistice plotline kind of just left me hanging. Yeah, the taste in my mouth after watching watching this movie was that oh, it, it wasn't really taking advantage of all the potential that it could it could have taken advantage of, and I felt like my God, we need a fourth movie in some years. Just trying to ad- address all these things because the the movie has some great ideas. I think it's great that it's shuffling stuff around because I had already read the book. I had already seeing the 1930 and 1979 adaptations. Nobody wants to see, I think, the same movie all over again for the third time. Or experience, as an experience for the fourth time, the same thing, essentially. So I was all for it, just shuffle it around. Let's let's see some new cards on the front. We were getting some of it. I didn't really warm up to the whole gore part of things. But when this political side of things started to pop up, I was like, yeah, more of this, please. Yeah, that was kind of my experience with the film also. Yeah. Which I I was surprised by it. Because this is the, the, the four-time Oscar winner. Of, yeah. of, and and this is the the new shiny Netflix treat movie. So I was actually... Yeah. And like, like technically it's so goddamn good. I think, I think this is the one that has the best location and establishing cinematography of all three films. I, I really love the movies. Uh, to me, the the really hard violence wasn't a problem. I 
I even kind of liked it. There were a lot of scenes that I, I really enjoyed here, which were overtly violent. Like the opening attack, where we are following the behind the one soldier's back as he has his shovel and he just, you know, rams a, a French soldier and hits him with a, uh, with a shovel. Loved it. I loved the, the moment, the, the scenes when the French flamethrower troops attacked the German trenches. Loved mm. those moments. Loved those scenes. So so technically, yeah. really fucking good movie. But somehow I, I still felt that I it, it didn't completely ful- fulfill me. I was kind of disappointed by it. Yeah. It's a, it's a weird place to be. Watch, watch like the Hollywood version and then watch the, the, you know, the big money German production and then be like, hey, the 1979 TV movie. <laughs> really like that one. It's fucking crazy. Yeah, there, there's just something about this latest incarnation. Just trying to sell me things way too hard. I think the battle scenes are a bit too sort of a cinematic not so organic as you would see in the 1930 version, for example. Uh, perhaps that, yeah. Yeah, that's an accusation that I can... Even though I did love the images and I, I really loved the scenes. Mm. But uh, yeah, that's actually an accusation that I also can land against in the newest version. And maybe even the, the makeup, the amount of dirt everywhere. was like, seriously? Is no one going to wipe their faces? Or the guy with the fork incident, let's say. He kills himself with a fork. I just kept discuss, discussing this with a few people. Can you are, you... are you even able to do that? Like, stab yourself several times with a dull fork and actually kill yourself. Kind of gore for the gore's sake, I found. But let's discuss, discuss some quickies and some of the additional points on the way, shall we? Why not? All quiet in the quickies. <laughs> the performance pedestal. Ah, oh, this is a tricky one. You go first. Ah, this is a tricky one. Uh, I have I have two aspects I really li- like in in these movies, and those are the Bomers and those are the the Kaczynskis. Yeah. And I I I would say those those are the two performances, the two roles, the two characters that gives. Where the real acting, in my opinion, shines. Those are the biggest, biggest roles that this uh, this story can actually have for its actors. So, if I would actually separate them, if I would pick my my favorite Bomer and my favorite Kaczynski, so my favorite Bomer would be Lou Ayers, mm. who plays Power in the in the nineteen thirty version. Okay. Even even though even though you know. I was fully, I was, I was really gushing on about Richard Thomas in in '79 version, and even though you know th- he really connected me with me, I do think that technically, when it comes to performance, when it comes to rating performance, you know, Lou Ayers is the best, and from Kaczynski's, I would say Albrecht Schuch from the latest film, Best Cat. Not the best character, in my opinion. Huh. That uh, not the best version of Cat necessarily. It's guy. I I'm I'm really torn between you know basically with all the three cats that we have. 
that the first one who is the most jovial, most laughing, most funny. The second one that is perhaps the most grounded and the, the third one which is uh, perhaps even a bit of an anarcho-communist in the end. Seeing how this, he despises all the figures of power and not just, you know, Himmelstosh. But, mm. you know, still, still I, I do think that perhaps Albert Schusch is per- the best cat that we have. Well, something that I really remember well from, from the 1930 version is this guy who is screaming in the trenches after an explosion that, Oh, my eyes! I can't see! So I enjoyed that performance, whoever you are, you were. Good job. From the more main performances, this is a tricky one because I felt that Felix Kammerer's, as stated, kind of the performance may have been a bit misguided in my opinion, although great acting. Mm. But hey, let's give it to Felix. Anyways, uh, next question. What worked? Um... After having badmouthed and cried about and griping over over the, these films, I have to emphasize that all of them are quite exceptional movies in different ways. So I would say that's what works in all of these films. What worked was, guess, just interesting to see how the performances or the techniques and the storytelling would change over the years that that was just fun to look at how how it changes uh but they are all movies that i mean they are very watchable movies all of them <laughs> what didn't work uh from my end i i don't have major burn it to the ground level major flaws with these movies i i have a different set of problems basically with all all three and those are those are problems that i'm willing to point out and i'm willing to talk about but they are not problems that i would absolutely say that oh my god this makes this film unbearable i'm even though i complained about it i'm fine with the overacting and and the clean uniforms and and perhaps bit adventurous nature of the 1930 version I'm I okayed the historical inaccuracies and I'm kind of fine in the end with the the overtly dramatic performances of the the, the 2022 version. So no major flaws. I don't know. Perhaps um, perhaps the in in 2022 version maybe the armistice negotiations as they were in the end done in the film. Perhaps the it was a bit unnecessary element. But like I said, that also is is not a major strike against the film. I have I have a whole bunch of things, tiny things that that I can complain about mm. and gripe about. But I I don't have like any any one. Oh my god, this was so bad. Yeah, yeah. There are, there were many tiny things, as you said. You know, some of those moments just that just kind of took you off. The creep for a moment there, like kind of the smudgy, messy TV esque cinematography, quite didn't work there. But, but yeah. Uh, so describe the film in one word. The films. From my end, one word for all three films would be harrowing. I've used it in the past 
past episodes, I use it again. But that's going to be my adjective. One of our favorite words. Yeah. Um, muddy. Certainly muddy. Dead landscapes with just mud as far as the eye can see. Will these films survive the test of time? Yep. 1931 most definitely. 1979 uh, perhaps will be unfortunately un uh, forgotten. And when it comes to that 2022 version, I'm not entirely sure. It, it, it rides the wave now. I don't know about, you know, 10 years onwards. It may be that, like, well, once again, it's, it's not because it's a terrible film and it deserves to be forgotten. It's more of a Netflix is a terrible dead cell of a streaming platform which can't fucking advertise its its movies. It's actually a running problem when it comes to Netflix. It treats everything, everything on Netflix as a content and not as films and that shows. So it might be that it's Netflix that gives this movie the, the killing blow in the end. <laughs> Could be. Okay. You really know you're watching All Quiet on the Western Front movies when... When your war is awesome one-on-one lecture gets interrupted by perhaps the strongest sentiment of I know the feeling, bro. Oh, you really know you're watching all Aquino and the Western Front films when... <laughs> what we've got here is failure to communicate. That is my answer. From Cool Hand Luke. Also a classic. <laughs> yeah. Also about institu- uh, misuse of institutional power. True, true. Did you did you like these films? I I did, I did. I I basically liked all of them, even though perhaps a bit different ways. And if I would have to rank them, I would say it's a, it's a tie on the first place between the 1930 version and the uh, 1979. Okay. And the second place would be 2022. Mm, I most definitely enjoyed quite a bit of the 1930, as already stated quite a couple of times here. 1979, I didn't really need all that much of repetition, and even repetition aside, I think it just wasn't artistically quite there where I happened to want it to be. So, um, for me, 1930... Is at the top, followed far away with the 2022 version, and then his close buddy is the 1979 version right there. Well, would I rewatch these films? I don't really often go back to war movies, but I think I can just jump on my part already. Would I recommend? Uh, I would recommend 1930. I would not recommend 1979. Um, 2022. It didn't strike a chord where I would go out of my way to outright recommend it, either. Credit where credit is due, but it needed a little bit more push. Be it the politics, be it the consistency of the of the acting when locked with the dramatic scenes or, or the dialogue that the one the movie wants to provide you. It just wasn't quite there, and I'm I'm a bit perplexed about the four Oscars. But there you go. Actually not. 
That's it's what the Oscars do. Just perplexing shit year after year. So yeah, recommendation only to nineteen thirty version. Okay, I on my end I would actually recommend all of them uh, with some caveats. Uh, if you would only watch one version, one adaptation, uh, well, to be infuriatingly inconsistently unclear, <laughs> I would actually give that the nineteen seventy nine version. And I would put, uh, when it comes to like like recommending these movies, even though I do recommend checking it out, but I would put the 2022 version as the last of the versions I would recommend. And I wouldn't recommend it as an adaptation of All Quiet. Most definitely not as the adaptation of, of All Quiet, but, but also just not as an adaptation of the novel. Takes too many liberties, in my opinion, to work as as a the, film version of the story, as far as I've understood what there is in the novel. Yep, it takes liberties. Yeah, but I do think that it is a great war movie. Still, it's not perfect, as as we've discussed. There, there's a lot that you have to kind of okay in order to to enjoy it. You have to okay the historical inaccuracies. You have to okay some of the performances. You have to also okay the story itself. Like like the farmer's son shoots cat in the woods. I I get what was going on. Was going on about the cycles of violence. How those gets repeated on the on the youngest of us. The the reason why the son shoots cat is because. He saw how how his dad tried to kill the the food stealing Germans. So, so he takes it takes impression from there and then turns it into a deadly action. I I I I, I get it, but kind of pissed me off. I kind of felt that uh, that was unnecessary. So those are the kind of stuffs that you just have to okay with the twenty twenty two version. But I do still think that it's it's an okay watchable war movie. Sometimes even even good good war movie, uh, technically great war movie. Really, really love the cinematography here. But like I said, it's 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 not the adaptation of the story. And and there is there's a stuff like like the lack of politics at times, even a lack of lack of face in the story. And I most definitely, I, I was one of those people who came into the Wikipedia entry to check out. What awards it had? It had won. Uh, granted, yeah, most of them were like for score. I couldn't understand that. Two Oscars for technical achievements. Well, fine, perhaps the best foreign picture. What the fuck? <laughs> Seriously, I I couldn't side with with you know the Academy. No, no. When it came to Oscars, I I couldn't side with the other uh, other awards that were awarded at this film. Yeah, what the hell is with Oscars and them? Just. Every year, picking some few targets that they just love to target. Here's the movie for the year. Look at this German war movie. Look at them denounce their actions in World War One. And yeah, part of that, of course, is how Oscars operate and the, and the mm. problems that go into the Oscar guidelines, which that the guidelines themselves already limit the scope of how many films actually really have a chance and have a shot winning the Oscar. Especially in movies like The Best Foreign. Mm. 
but, but still, but, still, like, I wouldn't have given the best for this one. But, but even with my gripes, I, I do think that it's, it's an okay film to watch. Just don't watch it as a film adaptation of, of All Quiet. Watch it as a, as a war movie X. Yeah. Kinda. And in my opinion, like, like the, if you are short on time, the, even though I do give it a recommendation, this is the last recommendation for these ones. I, I do think we'll check, check the previous two. I, I think they are better, even as films, even though not necessarily technically, in, in, in technically this sense, looking at you, 79. Yeah, maybe the the stupidest scene in the 2022 version where they go again to the to the same farm or the same farmhouse, try to do the same thing, and of course everyone knows what's gonna happen there. But then the extension of that thing with the kid in the forest, yeah, <clears throat> I'm on. I'm with you on that one. And dear listener, would you recommend *All Quiet on the Western Front*? Pick your adaptation. Come on, tell us all your. Opinion on that, man. Would you go recommend going to the trenches and having a war? Tell us all about that in the social media. Yeah, would you like to experience that? Tell us all about it. How numb do you feel tonight? At this point, after watching it three <laughs> and a half hour films about, about the First World War, not as numb as I was uh, after the Chinese propaganda episodes. <laughs> yeah. Christ. Yeah. Last time I had only two movies. Didn't have a whole bunch of background work either. Either on that, but yeah, that was kind of heavy. That 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 was that was a reprieve that I was really thankful because the battle at Lake Changshik. Holy shit! And I also noticed that we have covered a lot of war movies in this podcast. I think we need a break once again from this line of work. Yeah, I'm I'm all for it. Yeah. I don't know how it happens like that, but it just does happen like that. And in, in all fairness, war movies are often like in this case and in the Chinese case, some of the big movies the people gravitate towards for whatever reason. Alright, that, that kind of wraps it up for tonight's discussions and I... Uh, I think we will be back in a couple of weeks again. See you on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, or wherever you want to find us. Do you want to sign out this time? Until next time, dear listeners. One podcast is on a mission. This is that weird international cinema's nonsense. To bring international cinema the spotlight it deserves.